You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Before we get into the episode, I want to shout out our newest Patreon fan club member, Elizabeth Trujillo Coker from Lamarck, Texas. Elizabeth is now a premium listener and will enjoy tons of awesome perks including our newest bonus episode of Disturbing Calls, available only to Patreon fan club members. If you're curious what else is included for fan club members or you want your own shout out just like this one, visit disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club and join for as little as $3 a month to start receiving your benefits today. And now... On with the show. This episode contains true crime discussion. Listener discretion is advised. Good evening and welcome into a special crossover episode of Disturbed. I'm your host, Chad. This week... I'll be playing two episodes from guest narrator Alexandria Tucker's YouTube channel, Merc. So come along and join me as we explore the realm of true crime. This first episode is titled Five Cases That Were Solved in 2020 from the YouTube channel Merck with narration by Alexandria Tucker. And make sure you go subscribe to her channel. The link is in the show notes. Pamela Rose Aldridge McCall Born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Pamela Rose Aldridge McCall was described by her mother as free-spirited and transient as she spent her years hitchhiking throughout Tennessee and Virginia, where she resided in the community of Topping. In early 1991, the 33-year-old hitchhiker went missing near Spring Hill, Tennessee, and, according to witnesses, was last seen traveling with a semi-truck driver. In March of the same year, Pamela's body was discovered near the off-ramp of a road in Spring Hill. In another tragic turn, it was discovered that Pamela had been 24 weeks pregnant at the time of her death, and her unborn child had not survived. Her autopsy report also revealed that she had died of strangulation, with additional evidence indicating that she had been raped by her assailant. DNA from the perpetrator was recovered, but due to the nascency of DNA technology and the lack of other forms of hard evidence, her case soon went cold and was closed. 
It remained closed until April of 2019, when Spring Hill Police contacted the 22nd Judicial District Attorney's Office in Tennessee, requesting assistance in reopening the investigation into Pamela's murder. The request came as a result of an initiative by the DA's office, starting in 2014, to investigate unsolved homicide cases in the district. District Attorney Investigator Tommy Goetz reopened the case and submitted the DNA evidence acquired in the 1991 murder to a Tennessee Bureau of Investigation lab, where a DNA profile was compiled. When submitted to the FBI's National Combined DNA Index System, CODIS, the DNA matched DNA evidence recovered in two other unsolved homicide cases in Wyoming, both from 1992. The DA's office discovered that these cases were likely also linked to this unidentified truck driver that Pamela was last seen with. With the assistance of the Wyoming detectives and a host of federal agents, Tennessee investigators narrowed their search to Clark Perry Baldwin, a 59-year-old former truck driver living in Waterloo, Iowa. Baldwin's DNA matched the DNA evidence recovered from all three crime scenes, and Baldwin was arrested in May of 2020, charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one for Pamela and one for her unborn child. He is currently pending extradition to Tennessee, where he will face trial. He is also expected to be charged with two additional counts of murder for his involvement in the Wyoming cases. Baldwin's indictment is not only a victory for prosecutors and Pamela's family, but also yet another victory for the Tennessee DA's office initiative to reopen cold cases in the Spring Hill area. Since 2014, five unresolved homicide cases have been solved, with three individuals convicted on murder charges and two pending judgment. Margaret Peggy Beck Peggy Beck was only 16 years old when she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death at a Girl Scout camp in 1963. A Girl Scout since she was nine, Peggy was attending a summer Girl Scout camp in Jefferson County, Colorado. She was excited to be a camp counselor for the first time, but tragedy struck on August 18, 1963, when a fellow camper found her body in her tent after she failed to show up for breakfast that morning. Her tentmate had been in the infirmary the night of the murder, leaving Peggy alone in her tent. Sometime during the period between Peggy's last appearance before turning in for the night and breakfast the next morning, the brutal rape and strangulation took place. Investigators scoured the scene and searched fervently for any leads, but with no witnesses and little evidence, the case quickly went cold. Over the following years, the case remained open, with investigators still searching for possible suspects. Little changed over the next 44 years after the incident. In 2007, detectives at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office created a John Doe DNA profile from evidence collected at the crime scene and entered it into the FBI's CODIS database, the same one used to help identify the killer in the Pamela McCall case. While this initial effort to use DNA to identify a suspect failed to turn up any new leads, it set the stage for investigators to create a more comprehensive DNA profile 12 years later in 2019. With this new profile, investigators enlisted the help of a private DNA testing company, United Data Collect, to test the new profile against UDC's database. This process, genetic genealogy, involved DNA being matched to public genetic genealogy databases to find relatives of a potential suspect. In a stroke of luck, the test found matches linked to family members of the individual to which the DNA belonged. After further inquiry, James Reynolds Taylor was identified as the primary suspect, with his DNA matching DNA evidence collected from the scene of the crime. 
Despite this breakthrough and an arrest warrant issued in April of 2020, Taylor remains at large, having fallen off public radar since his last known spotting in the Las Vegas, Nevada area in 1976. Taylor would now be 80 years old if still alive. According to investigators, Taylor was living in Edgewater, Colorado, a municipality located in Jefferson County during the time of the murder. He was married with at least one child and worked as a television repairman. Little else is known about his life, whereabouts, or motivations. Nevertheless, the identification of Taylor as the presumed killer makes this the oldest known case to have ever been solved through genetic genealogy. Detectives at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office have encouraged anyone with knowledge of Taylor to contact their office so that justice can be achieved for Peggy's murder. Karen Spencer At approximately 10 p.m. on November 29, 1972, 7th grader Karen Spencer left her home in Fairhaven, Virginia, telling her family that she intended to borrow a book from a nearby classmate's house. Tragically, this would be the last time her family saw the 12-year-old alive. After going missing that night, the body was found three days later, buried under leaves in a patch of woods known to the residents of Fairhaven as Pfeiffer's Field. Karen had been brutally beaten, dying of repeated blunt force trauma, according to her autopsy. Detectives identified a few possible suspects after their preliminary investigation. Among the police department's persons of interest was 16-year-old James Jimmy Edwards. Edwards was believed to have been Karen's boyfriend at the time, though little else could be determined about the relationship between the two. Additionally, the case lacked a clear motivation for the brutal murder, and despite extensive investigation, police were unable to charge any of the suspects in Karen's death. Despite this, investigators did not give up hope and continued to search for new leads or evidence. The case was turned over to the Fairfax County Major Crimes Bureau Cold Case Squad and remained without any significant developments until the summer of 2018. In an unexpected breakthrough, two independent acquaintances of Jimmy Edwards, who died in 1997, came forward to police, informing detectives that Edwards had confessed to them in the early 90s that he was responsible for Karen's murder. With this new information, police redoubled their efforts to solve this case. Now, with the clear suspect identified, police worked with the public to gain as much evidence as possible to determine whether the individual accounts could be corroborated. Through additional exculpatory evidence that came to light during the second wind of the investigation, the other possible suspects in the case were ruled out. Finally, 18 months after the initial breakthrough, police announced that, as of April 2020, their investigation had yielded sufficient evidence to arrest and prosecute Edwards, had he still been alive. With this revelation, the case was officially closed, with Edwards being the presumed killer. While justice came too late for Edwards to do time for his vicious murder of Karen Spencer, this news hopefully can bring some closure to Karen's surviving family, and is a hard-fought victory for the Fairfax County Police Department. According to police statements released with the case closure, quote, the fact that the Fairfax County detectives never gave up, combined with our community's willingness to come forward with information, were critical in solving this case. Naomi Sanders. A divorce department manager, 57-year-old Vallejo, California resident Naomi Sanders lived with only one companion, her poodle named Cindy. Naomi was cooking dinner on the night of February 27, 1973. Her half-cooked steak remained on the stovetop when her body was discovered by the police later that night. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death by an unknown assailant before her meal could even be completed. In a last act of loving obedience, Cindy was watching dutifully over her owner's body when police arrived. 
Investigators were worried from the beginning that this case would be difficult to solve, owing to Naomi's job as an apartment manager, a role that led her to frequently invite in prospective individuals looking for an apartment. Without any clear leads, Naomi's case quickly hit a dead end, leaving investigators with no choice but to leave her case unsolved. Similarly to past cold cases solved through previously collected DNA evidence, police attempted to match their gathered unknown DNA profile against the FBI's CODIS database in 2014, but were met with no results. Reluctant to give up on the DNA evidence, police tried matching the profile against a California state database, but again they were met with disappointment. Finally, in 2018, investigators turned to genetic genealogy, much like in the process employed to solve the Peggy Beck case. With the help of a Virginia-based company known as Parabon Nano Labs, police finally identified two new leads in the case that had long been cold. One lead took California investigators to Louisiana, but this turned out to be a false positive. The second led investigators to Robert Dale Edwards, who had died in 1993 due to a drug overdose. Investigators were able to locate and solicit DNA from Edward's son, however, and at last they found their match. The deceased Edwards had been a co-worker of Naomi's and had a long criminal history that ranged from theft to attempted murder. He would have been 22 years old at the time of the murder, but police were unable to ascertain a direct motive for the rape and murder of Naomi. Nevertheless, police finally had enough evidence to close the case nearly five decades later in February of 2020. Like in the murder of Karen Spencer, Naomi's killer evaded justice in life. But thanks to genetic genealogy, Naomi's surviving family members can rest easy without wondering who was responsible for this heinous act. Tonya McKinley New Year's Eve of 1985 should have been a time of celebration for young mother Tonya McKinley, who was 23 years old with an 18-month-old son. The Pensacola, Florida resident had left a local bar around 1.30 a.m. after enjoying the New Year's festivities. Hours later, her body was discovered on the side of the road by a passing family. She had been raped and murdered before being discarded by an unknown assailant, according to her autopsy. Despite interviewing dozens of bar patrons who had last seen Tonya, police were unable to name any suspects in the murder. While new leads appeared over the years, police continued to hit dead end after dead end. In a particularly moving statement released by the Pensacola police regarding the case, detectives reflected on the tragedy of the situation. While the case remained unsolved, a baby boy grew up without a mother, parents buried their daughter without knowing justice, and a killer was walking around free. Thanks to the help of genetic genealogy, detectives finally found their opportunity to identify Tonya's killer. Using DNA databases, Pensacola police were able to construct a family tree of relatives with similar DNA to that of the DNA evidence collected at the scene of the crime. Through this, detectives located 57-year-old Daniel Wells, a relative to one of the matches found via the DNA database. Wells lived near Pensacola at the time of the murder and became the primary suspect for detectives. In March of 2020, detectives trailing Wells were able to collect a cigarette butt dropped out of the car window. The DNA from the cigarette matched the DNA from Tonya's murder, and after more than 35 years, police could finally make an arrest in the case. Wells now awaits trial for first-degree murder and first-degree sexual battery, and justice can finally be given to Tonya's family, including her son, now in his mid-30s. Nothing can make up for the loss, but at least now the investigation of Tonya's tragic death can act as another example of genetic genealogy, providing closure to victims and their families.
worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy, and Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries. We're, we're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh yeah, that's his nickname, Finger Banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. <laughs> the only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. If you enjoy what you're hearing, consider supporting us through our fan club. Members enjoy perks like shout-outs, early ad-free episodes, merch store discounts, bonus episodes, and much more. Find out more at disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club. This episode is made possible by Supporty. Are you struggling to stay motivated to the goals you've set for yourself? Maybe you're trying to wake up earlier, but you keep hitting that snooze button. Or perhaps you have dreams of starting your own podcast or side hustle, but you haven't been putting in the work consistently. Well, one of the best ways to make lasting behavioral changes is by an accountability partner who will help you stick to positive daily actions. So how do you find a reliable accountability partner who's going to engage with you and keep you honest? Supporty is a mobile app that matches you with accountability buddies for a week at a time. Supporty pairs you and a buddy up one-on-one. That's for maximum accountability. Plus, it's mutual. So you encourage your buddy and they encourage you each day of your seven-day session. What's really cool is you can see whether your partner accomplished their daily actions and they can see the same about you. If you want a more effective way to stay motivated, Experience the difference of an accountability partner. Download Supporty, that's support with an I at the end, from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store, 
And make sure you choose Disturbed Podcast when you create your account to start your two-week free trial. You can check out the show notes of this episode for more details. Get encouragement, get motivated, and achieve more with Supporty. And our final episode tonight is titled The Westfield Watcher from the YouTube channel Merck with narration by Alexandria Tucker. Why are you here? I will find out. Read the first ominous letter. Derek and Maria Bratis were busy restoring and updating their newly purchased home at 657 Boulevard. Derek had just finished a long day of painting the home's walls when he received the strange piece of mail. It read, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? This was the first of many letters that would be sent to the couple who had just paid a whopping $1.3 million to buy the beautiful house in the New Jersey neighborhood of Westfield in 2014. The neighborhood was that of the American dream, One of the safest areas in New Jersey, it was classic, well-kept, and upscale, with the average household income nearing $200,000 a year. Maria and Derek had worked their whole adult lives to be able to afford such an extravagant home and were looking forward to starting their lives in it. But their dream would never be fulfilled. Built in 1905 by a prominent town historian, the three-story colonial-style house boasts six bedrooms, high ceilings, elegant columns, multiple fireplaces, and a sweeping, verdant garden. It was purchased from the original owners by the mayor of the town in 1913 for just $1. Eventually, the mayor would sell it to his son and daughter-in-law for $1 in 1947. They would sell it to another couple a few years later in 1951, again for $1. That couple would sell the house to another couple in 1953, again for just $1. That couple would sell it to another family in 1955 for just $1. This was not some familial transaction where the home sold for a dollar for tax purposes, as one would think at first glance, because something far more sinister was happening. No one wanted to live in the beautiful home. It was being watched. Eventually, the latest owners would try to make a profit from the house and sold it for $1.3 million in 2014 to a hardworking couple, Maria and Derek, who, within the first few days of being the new owners of record, started receiving disturbing letters. In early June, the couple received a note in the mail asking about if young blood was being brought in. It read, in part, in regards to there being new inhabitants, Once I know their names, 
I will call them and draw them to me. I asked the prior owners to bring me young blood. The thing was, children were moving into the home. The couple had three children. Exactly a month later, on July 18th, another letter came. This one asking a worrisome question and making a disturbing statement. Have they found what's in the walls yet? In time they will. I am pleased to know your names and have the names now of the young blood you've brought to me. The last letter they received requested horribly specific information. Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom, then I can plan better. The couple was so spooked that, besides calling the police each time a letter arrived, they also hired former FBI agents, forensic linguists, and private bodyguards to assist in finding the culprit. The forensic linguist was only able to infer that the person writing the letter was of an advanced age, that they were probably elderly, which made the letters more legitimate and even spookier as they were evidently not just a teenage prank. The letters had no return address and police had nothing to go on. There was nothing they could investigate as there were no leads. Police claimed they were investigating all possibilities and looking at all the neighbors as suspects, but never made any arrests or even had any specific suspects. The watcher seemed to have a fascination for the three children set to move in, as a few of the letters specifically referenced the nicknames the couple used for each of their kids, with one letter stating, 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? The nicknames referenced in the letter were not released to the public, as that would further endanger the innocent children. The couple were unable to move into their dream home as they felt unsafe. In one letter, the watcher wrote, Allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. The watcher commented that the new owners had updated the house so fancy and remarked that the remodel cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The watcher also said that they ran from room to room imagining life with the rich occupants there. The couple was appropriately freaked out and disturbed by these highly intrusive pieces of correspondence and attempted to sell the house to no avail. Later, they would file a lawsuit against the previous owners, alleging that, as they were aware of the stalker, known by this time as the Watcher, they should have disclosed that to potential buyers and that by not doing so, they were in breach of contract. The previous owners definitely were aware of the Watcher, as on May 26th of 2014, weeks before the deed would be transferred to Maria and Derek, the Watcher sent a letter noting that there was a new family moving into the home and who claimed a right of possession and or ownership to the home. With the lawsuit unsuccessful and the police not being able to solve the case, the couple applied to have the land bulldozed and proposed building two smaller properties side by side to sell at a lower price or to rent out. But their application to the Neighborhood Planning Commission was denied. They were stuck with the watched house exactly as it was. 
Not only was the couple dealing with the fear of the letter writer, but the couple now had to contend with angry members of the neighborhood, who believed that the couple's reaching out to the press and the police was bringing unwanted attention to the otherwise quiet neighborhood. One neighbor even went as far to suggest that Maria and Derek be, quote, tarred and feathered for them having brought the previously relatively unknown area into media spotlight. Neighbors were also offended that they had been questioned by police as persons of interest. Since attempting to sell the home multiple times, each at a lower price point, the couple has given up and is now renting it out, but at a significant loss as the rent is less than the mortgage payment. The last letter received was in 2017, after the failed attempt at bulldozing the home. It read simply, Loved ones suddenly die. You are despised by the house, and the watcher won. To date, no advances have been made in the case, and the watcher remains at large. Netflix has just purchased the rights to this intriguing story, and will be producing a feature-length film on it. If you have any information on the true identity of The Watcher, please do not hesitate to contact the Westfield Police Department at area code 908-789-4000. If you have a question or comment about this episode or the podcast in general, you can leave us a voicemail on our website, disturbedpodcast.com, and click the blue microphone in the lower right. Call in and let us know where you're listening from. I always enjoy all the different places where we have listeners. We'll be playing your messages in future episodes. I hope you enjoyed this special crossover episode of Disturbed, and make sure you go subscribe to Alexandria's YouTube channel, Merc. The link is in the show notes. And if you did enjoy this episode, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening, leave us a rating and review, and tell a few friends about us. All of these things help new people discover the podcast and keeps us growing. And it's all greatly appreciated. And if you want some extra perks and content, consider joining the fan club, where you'll enjoy early ad-free episodes, merch store discounts, bonus content, and best of all, access to our exclusive bonus series, Disturbing Calls, available only to fan club members. You can join today at disturbedpodcast.com slash fan club. Theme music for this episode by Kevin Hartnell. Special thanks to all the contributing narrators and submitters of these stories. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Disturbed Podcast and on Twitter at Disturbed underscore pod to stay up to date with all the latest Disturbed news. We'll be back next week with a brand new regular episode. Stay safe out there, y'all. <laughs>